Have you ever been uh, to a dinner, an event, or some sort of award ceremony uh, where the MC got up uh, to introduce the next speaker and said, here is a person that needs no introduction. And then they go on for five to ten minutes to introduce the individual with a lengthy introduction about their qualifications and about their accomplishments, and you went, I thought you said they needed no introduction. Uh, that's kind of the way I feel about this text this morning. Uh, in some ways, this text needs no introduction, because for most of us, simply reading this text causes our modern sensibilities to either be offended or to be very confused. We find ourselves asking the question, does, does God really care what I wear in church? So, not to offend my own statement, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 2 through 16, and I expect by the time I'm done, you'll be interested in what this message is all about today. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every, or of wife, is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair was given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I'm so glad we're through the tough stuff in chapters 1 through 10, and we can get to the easy stuff in chapters 11 through 14. See, texts like this are precisely why we at Faith Bible Church believe, first and foremost, in the systematic book-by-book exposition of Scripture, because... In my own self, I would never have randomly chosen to preach this text to you this morning. And I expect that if I had preached the text, if we weren't working through a book, you would never believe me when I say I didn't randomly choose this text. But those of you that have been with us as we've walked through this text know that chapter 11 simply comes after chapter 10. I don't have a soapbox, I don't have an axe to grind. This is the next text that stands us before us this morning. But as such, and as every week, we need God's prayer or God's guidance as we study it together. So let's pray before we jump into this. Father, we've sung your praises of how you're good and how you're all-powerful this morning. And Lord, we recognize that we need that here now too. Father, give me ability, the ability to divide your word rightly. Give us, as a body, the ability to hear your word. We know consistently throughout history, as people, we have been slow of hearing. We have had blind eyes and deaf ears and hard hearts. And Lord, we pray that as we study your word together this morning, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears. Lord, help us to see what this text is teaching 
about the value of men and women in your church. Lord, help us to understand it correctly. Lord, help us to glorify you for the way you've designed us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, you may have noticed uh, that as Paul begins this section in verse 2 of chapter 11, that he starts off this new discussion by indicating that he's talking about something new. He says, now. That's an indicator that there's kind of a section break, and he's moving into his next section. After addressing the spiritual arrogance of the church in Corinth over the first 10 chapters, Paul now gets specific about their church gathering and their worship together. The primary emphasis of chapters 11 through 14 focus on the disunity that the church was experiencing when they came together. Because they were fighting over their leaders and because they were fighting over morality and because they were fighting over their rights and freedoms, when they came together as a church, they were fighting over that too. In fact, I love the way that Tom Schreiner puts this when introducing chapters 11 through 14. He says this, individualism was harming the Corinthians in that believers were living for self-expression and their own desires instead of aiming for the edification of the church as a whole. They were living for self-expression and their own desires instead of aiming for the edification of the church as a whole. And that is just as true of us today as it is of the Corinthian church in the first century. But Paul seeks to address this issue by asking essentially the question, how should we as individually, individual believers glorify God when we gather together for worship? He says, how should we gather together? What should we do? What should we not do? Remember back in chapter 10, verse 31, the emphasis was on the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So he says, then as your church gathers together, you should do this for the glory of God. Now, one other brief caveat before we move into the actual text in our time together this morning. I am seeking primarily to achieve clarity of truth in what the text is saying in our time together this morning more so than eloquence and memorability. I focus more on helping us understand what it is that the text is saying than on maybe wording it in a way that's as memorable as it would be in a typical week. So in some ways, there's going to be some lengthy dialogues about some Greek terms and what's being said. Hold on, this stuff is really important because I don't want you to take my word for what I think the text is saying. I want you to examine it for yourself and saying, is this what 1 Corinthians is saying? So, as we walk through this text, we're going to see three specific ways that we glorify God in our churches. But they build upon one another, so we'll walk through those step by step and see how it all builds together to the point Paul is trying to make. First, first point that I think Paul makes here right at the beginning, we glorify God by upholding loving authority in the church. By upholding loving authority in the church. After introducing this new topic in, or in verse 2, Paul begins by offering what might be a surprising commendation to this church. Look at verse 2. He says, Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. If you've been with us over the course of the study of 1 Corinthians, you'll notice this is a little bit surprising. This is the first time Paul uses this sort of terminology. It's an extremely strong term that says, I literally praise you. I'm celebrating the fact that you've remembered me in everything. Despite the errors that were true of this church, they had maintained a doctrinal, important doctrinal clarity. He doesn't criticize their doctrine as he's walking through this book. He criticizes their practice. Now, this also may indicate that the error that he's about to address in the church is actually a minority opinion. It's a select group of women that are causing some sort of disruption here, but we'll, we'll address that as we walk through it. 
Specifically, he praises them for two things, for remembering him in everything and for maintaining their traditions even as he delivered it to him. Now, it may be indicating that this was part of the letter that the Corinthians wrote to him, asking him a number of questions, but I think it's more likely that he's just celebrating the fact that they're remembering what he taught them originally. Remember back in Acts chapter 18, Paul was the founding pastor of this church. He had established this church, and he had stayed in it for 18 months to establish sound doctrine in this church, and he praises them for sticking to that doctrine. He, he takes, oh, excuse me, <coughs> still lingering a little bit, you know what I mean? I can't quite shake this cough. But he takes time to commend their faithfulness in doctrine here before moving into the issue. And he's, he's not just blowing smoke. He's not just buttering them up so that he can say something really hard. He's genuinely celebrating what they know. But he also has a serious concern. Look at verse 3. He says, but I want you to understand. I want you to understand. This is specific tom- terminology that indicates Paul has a new teaching to explain to these Corinthian believers. Maybe they didn't understand this for some reason, or they hadn't been taught this for some reason. He says, I'm going to introduce this broad principle, this theological truth that is relevant everywhere. And then he's going to build from that foundation into the specific application of what that looks like in the Corinthian church. Now, before addressing this section, we're going to get a little bit nerdy. We need to establish some ground rules for this section of Scripture. We need to establish some word definitions and what Paul is talking about here. Two specific definitions. I told you we're going to get a little bit nerdy, okay, but put on your thinking caps in our time here this morning. First, we have to establish an understanding of what he means by head. You'll notice in verse 3 he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This term... Kephale literally means head, okay? Most of the time that you run into it in Scripture, it's talking about the thing that sits on your shoulders. You know, tukabesa, that whole idea, okay? It's literally your head. Now, clearly, that's not what Paul's talking about here. If you read it literally as a head, the head of every man is Christ, the head of wife is her husband, the head of the Christ is God, you get a really strange image in your mind. Not talking about a literal head. So clearly, he's using it metaphorically. Now, There's two ways that he could be using this metaphorically. There's two different terms, two different ways to interpret this word. It can mean both authority, responsibility, leadership, authority, headship, and it can mean source, origin, or that which everything flows from. So how are we to understand what Paul is referring to here? You may not be surprised to find there's extensive debate on this particular subject. Let me try and address each of these interpretations as faithfully to their position as I possibly can. Some argue that this should be translated source. They're arguing for an ontological origination, if you will. The place from which everything else flows, the origin of what else follows from it. The positives for this interpretation is it's consistent or seems to be with verses 8 and 9. Look over there. He says, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. This is what we were reading in Genesis chapter 2. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so so there's a consistency to consider this, this idea of coming from another, the idea that Adam's rib was taken out to form Eve, okay? It also has the advantage of being particularly acceptable in our culture. To interpret this verse as source is far more acceptable to our culture than to interpret this verse as head in the authority vein. Now, the negatives of this position. 
This interpretation is a bit obscure. It's a bit of a rare way to interpret this translation. In fact, as I studied throughout the New Testament, I could not find a single instance where Paul uses this term translated as source when referring to husband and wife, man and woman relationships in the New Testament. An example of that would be Ephesians 5, but we're going to look at that here in just a moment. The last thing that becomes a problem with this idea is it is theologically problematic if you look at the things that are sandwiched on either side of this text. Let's look at this for a moment, right? If you read verse 3 and you translate head as source, instead you read, but I want you to understand that the source of every man is Christ. Don't struggle with that, right? We were created in the image of God. Christ was present there at the origination of mankind. The source of a wife is her husband, Okay, that's the idea of Adam, right, and the, the rib and Eve. But then you run into, and the source of Christ is God. And you go, okay, what does that mean? If you choose to interpret the, ter- or interpret the term this way, you find yourself in a position where you are arguing that the source, the ontological origination for Christ is God the Father. In the first century, that was known as the Arian heresy, to deny the deity of Christ and say he is a created being that came at some point after God the Father is precisely what the Mormon church does, and it is heresy. Which means you're left with one alternative. You can interpret the source as related to Christ's incarnation. God the Father being the source, and this is what some commentators do with this text as far as when Christ was incarnate. But I struggle with that interpretation because that introduces the incarnation to a passage of Scripture that the incarnation is entirely foreign to. Paul has not been talking about the incarnation. To bring that up randomly would be very, very strange. You may have figured out I don't prescribe to this interpretation. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. On the other side, you can argue for more the authority idea, that of unique responsibility and headship. The positives of this position is it's consistent with Paul's usage across his letters. He uses this sort of terminology in various different places throughout the New Testament, and it all seems to indicate this idea of headship or authority. It also works on all three levels. It's easy to look at it and say, you understand that the head of every man is Christ. God is the authority over us. Christ is the authority over us. That every every man is, or a wife is her husband. Okay, that's the one we're struggling with, right? But then on the other side, the head of Christ is God. Right? Christ submits willfully to the will of the Father. We think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Lord, remove this cup from me, but yet, not my will, but yours be done. Christ is equal in value, equal in essence, distinct in role, and willfully chooses to submit his authority to that of the Father. So this position is consistent in that way. I would also argue it's more consistent with chapter, or verses 8 through 10. Because after talking about the man not being made from the woman, the woman for man, neither man were created for woman, but woman for man, in verse 10 he says that is precisely why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So I think that's actually more consistent with what Paul is saying in verses 8 through 10. Now the negative challenge to this is if you interpret it head or you interpret it authority, you run into a cultural difficulty. We read this text and we run a front of exactly what our culture tells us. And it forces us to go above and beyond to help clarify what we're talking about here. There are some that would argue that there is an issue of value and equality that is present 
inherently in the text of the New Testament, and they would look at Paul and they would say, at some points he's inspired, and at some points he's not. Because when he talks to women, he's not talking about that. He's, he's just a bigot. That undermines the entire understanding of the New Testament and what we believe about inerrancy. But we must therefore clarify what we're talking about. We mean a unique headship and authority in terms of role and function, not a unique or distinct value. Men are not more valuable than women. Men do not possess some intelligence that's more than women. Men do not possess some ability or spiritual gifts, as we're going to talk about in chapter 12, that women do not. He is simply saying that within the confines of marriage, and I would argue by extrapolation the church as well, there is a unique role and authority that God has designed for men and women in the church. Now, the last position that must be addressed here is there is both a third option here where some tend to kind of blend the last two options, and they talk about a prominent position rather than source and rather than headship and authority. They talk about the prominent position. The problem is that third party, while trying to kind of moderate the two positions, essentially has the problems of both without the value of a good interpretation. It seeks to moderate the position, but we shouldn't always seek for the middle ground when we're interpreting Scripture. Some people may fall over here, others may fall over here. The answer is not always here. The answer is in what the text is saying. And I believe what the text is saying is it's speaking to headship and authority. Now, hold on. We're going to talk about what that means here in just a moment. Because we have to address the second thing as well. The second term here that's challenging is the term that gets translated wife. Your Bible probably has a little note that says wife can also be translated woman. The term for wife and the term for woman in Greek is the same term. It's dictated by what the context is talking about, which is why it gets a little bit challenging here in this section. Some of you may be going, that's ridiculous. Why doesn't the New Testament have a different word for wife than it has for woman? Which I would say, I, I don't know. That's kind of the way languages work. Let me give you an example of that. The classic example that I use in our hermeneutics classes when we're teaching people how to study the Bible. If I stand up here and I say, look, it's a mouse. What's in your head? You're talking about a little computer mouse that you control your computer with, or are you talking about Jerry? For those of you that have no idea what Jerry is, Tom and Jerry, it's an old cartoon. Jerry was the mouse. Okay? I realize I'm dating myself here. Okay? But what did you think of? Most of you probably thought of the little mouse. And you could look at it and you could say, in our modern technological age, where probably you see a computer mouse more often than you see a rodent, hopefully at least you see a computer mouse more often than you see a rodent, why don't we have different words for this? That's the way language works. Context, what's around it, dictates how we interpret the word. Right? So, what does the context say that Paul has in mind here? Again, there's extensive debate on this subject. As you read this word translated wife in your ESV or other translations translated woman, some argue that wife is the correct translation. They limit this term to specifically talking about male and female relationships within the confines of marriage. Others would argue for woman, a more broad definition. The challenge is that opens up this aspect, this word, to more universal application. So is it specifically a wife in the context of marriage, or is there a broader reality of these roles across society, across culture. Now, I told you before that I do not believe that the middle ground is always the right answer. And now I'm going to opposite or argue that here, Paul actually has in mind both of these things. And I like the way the ESV translates it because it starts off the section by saying wife, and then it transitions to using the term woman. 
And that's because this sort of relationship forms a paradigm, a correlation between the church and between marriage relationships that is actually at the heart of what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about both marriage and the church. He's talking about the way that both of these institutions reflect the glory of God and Christ's love for us. Now turn to Ephesians 5. Let's look at Ephesians 5, another place that Paul is addressing. Similar terminology here. We don't have time to exhaustively cover it, but we need to look at how Paul uses the terminology here. In Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, Paul is addressing the subject specifically of marriage. Specifically of marriage. And probably you're familiar with this text as well. Paul says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head, same word, of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So he addresses that and he says, husband or wives, this is your role in relationship to your husbands, and there's a correlation in the relationship of the church to Christ. Okay, now skip ahead. In verse 25, he addresses the husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as what? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So he says, there's a correlation here in your marriage. There's a metaphor built into the creation of the universe that husbands and wives are to be a metaphor for Christ and the church. And he says that down in verse 31 and 32. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying that part of what's built into the way your marriage ought to operate in that relationship is to be a metaphor for Christ's love for his bride and the way the church is to respond to that love. It's built into the DNA of the creation. It's built into the way God designed everything. Now go back to 1 Corinthians. When addressing this idea of wives and women in the church, I don't think it's overly critical to make sure we interpret it one way because I think Paul has both in mind. Because the church and marriage has this correlation where ought, they ought to function in similar veins, in similar ways. And so I think he shifts back and forth between these two things. Now, <laughs> who's left awake? <laughs> Have we had enough geeking out on the Greek here? Let's move forward. Let's actually look at the text, okay? Because he details three truths here that we must understand. Look at verse 3. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. He says three truths. He lays this principle out that we have to understand. He says, every man's head is Christ. What he's saying is, Every man who has ever lived is in submission under the lordship of Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. It doesn't matter if you profess faith in Christ or you don't profess faith in the Christ. Every man who has ever lived ultimately has to respond to God in some way, has to respond to Christ. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord regardless of the way you lived your life today. Every man's head is Christ. We submit to Christ. Okay, now I'm going to skip over that middle one because I want to come back to it. Then he says, Christ's head is God. The head of Christ is God. He says, Christ, though co-equal with God, though equal value with God the Father, willfully submits to the Father's leadership in the Godhead. He said it's true within the Godhead. It's true within the relationship between Christ and the church. And oh, by the way, it's true within the relationship between wives and husbands. 
He says, the head of a wife is her husband. Wives are called to submit to the godly leadership of their husbands. Now hold the rotten fruit. Hold on to that for a moment. I'm going to talk about what that means here in just one second. But fundamentally, what we have to recognize is this progression of three things. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, wisely sandwiches the one thing we're going to have an issue with in between two things we cannot jettison. He says, I am going to put this issue, which is at the heart of the problem in Corinth, in between the reality of Christ's loving headship of the church and the Father's loving headship of the Son. And so, if you are tempted to jettison the middle command, you must jettison the commands on either side. If you adopt the commands on either side, you must faithfully adhere to the command in the middle. Again, I'm not arguing my position. I'm not, I don't actually get up here on Sunday morning looking for people to egg my house. Like, that's, that's not my goal. But if we are going to be faithful to the text and we are going to say the Bible is the authority, God is the authority, not the way I feel, not what our culture says, we have to interpret it correctly. The point is that God's good authority and headship is built into the fabric of creation. It is not demeaning, it is not devaluing, and it is not unloving by its nature. Now, it can be used that way. We're going to talk about that reality here in a moment. But we cannot argue that the Father's loving authority over the Son is demeaning, devaluing, or unloving of the Son. We cannot argue that the Son's loving authority over the church is demeaning, devaluing, or unloving to the church. It's one of the greatest realities in all of Scripture. So, to come back to our original point, we glorify God by upholding loving headship in the church. In that way, it's similar to the differing roles you'll find if you enter any courtroom across Nebraska. Think about the different roles that function within a courtroom. You've got the judge on the bench, and you've got the plaintiff and the defendant, and you've got the lawyers, and you've got the, the jury, right? And all of them have unique value. They have unique contribution. None of them are saying, I'm more important, I'm more valuable than other parts. When you stand next to your lawyer and you're the plaintiff, you're not saying, well, he's important because he gets to speak, and I'm not because I don't. But if the courtroom were to operate with everybody kind of just saying whatever they wanted to say, it would be chaos. Imagine the chaos if there wasn't order in the courtroom. Paul is saying there's unique roles, but is not undermining the value of any of the parties involved here. And this is significance for us, both individually and as a church. First, for the individual believer, let me, let me attempt to address you men first with what is being said here. I believe, based upon this text and other places that we can go in the Scripture, that as men in our marriages and in the church, we are called to represent God's love, Christ's love, for His bride, the church. We are meant to fulfill this metaphor of how much Christ loves and gave Himself for His bride, the church. You are called by God to exercise loving headship in your family. And that is an enormous responsibility. It does not mean domineering. It does not mean being self-centered. And it does not mean being passive. If you, as a man in the church, go to a text like 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 3, as an excuse for you to control 
and manipulate and intimidate your children or your wife, you are in really dangerous territory. Christ's love for his bride was not that at all. If you go to a passage like 1 Corinthians 3 as an excuse for you to come home after work and kick your feet up and tell your wife to make you a sandwich, you do not have a leg to stand on from 1 Corinthians 11. That is not loving headship the way Christ loved the church. But neither is passive leadership. Neither is sitting back and saying, I don't care what happens with my family. I don't care what my wife wants to do. I don't care about the needs of those I'm called to lead. I'm just going to let them do their own thing. If Christ had done that for the church, imagine the condition we would be in. There is no excuse for domineering, self-centered, or passive leadership in this leadership headship. Women, I believe that you are called to represent an appropriate response to Christ's leadership in the way you operate in your marriage and your families. You are called by God to exercise loving submission in your family. And that doesn't mean taking over when he drops the ball, because he will. I've done it. But it also doesn't mean sitting back, saying, I'm not going to contribute, and I just hope he fails. And I'll tell him when he does. There is a role, there is a metaphor that we are supposed to represent of responding lovingly to Christ's leadership in our homes and in the church. And as it is so frequently the case, it's more about the heart than it is about the external activity. You can do any number of things externally, but is your heart in the right place? And as I said before, I think there's a correlation here between the church and the family. As leaders, we're called not to use our authority for our own sake, but for the good of those we lead. Elders, as representative of fathers in the home, are called to not be authoritarian, but also not be timid. We're called to boldly lead and love, and we're called to care for those under our shepherdess. As a body, that means responding in loving submission to that authority. It's not an active rebellion of fighting against everything the leadership is doing, and it's also not a passive sit back saying, they got it figured out, I'm not going to worry about it. Now, why have I belabored these verses so much? I assure you we're going to pick up speed as we move through this text. But if you don't subscribe to what is being assumed in principle at the beginning of this text, then what follows by way of specific application is never going to make sense to you. So we have to establish this idea before we can move on to what Paul says as we go forward. Second reality about how we glorify God. We glorify God by maintaining the dignity of gender and, or gender distinctions, and gender dependence. The dignity of both gender distinctions and gender dependence. We're going to see this in verse 4 through 12. First, Paul argues for maintaining gender distinctions. He says there is dignity in the way God has created you, both male and female. And again, before we actually get into verse 4, there's a clarifying issue, shockingly, right? And naturally, this is debated as well. What's a head covering? What are we talking about when we bring up these verses? Some will argue that what is in mind here is simply hair. It's the idea of a bun or hair on top of the head that the women would let down in certain contexts. The strength of this is in verse 15. We read, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, 
for her hair is given to her as a covering. And literally, that's the only form of this covering idea, the only noun here that's actually in the whole text. However, the weakness to this is I find this concept to be extremely difficult to apply in the reverse when it refers to men. Look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonored his head. If we interpret covered as hair, see where I'm going with this? This gives a bit of a preference to bald men. And much as some of the elders and pastors of the church might like that interpretation, not speaking to anyone in particular, and yes, yes, I know I'm going that direction too, okay, just, just for the record. You see where this kind of doesn't make sense if we're talking about hair, right? So I would definitely prefer the second definition. What he has in mind here is some sort of a veil or a hat that was common in this first century church in Corinth that somehow distinguished the sexes. The men wouldn't wear this hat, and people knew by that that they were men, and the women would wear this hat or veil or head covering, and by that, you knew they were women. It's fairly straightforward, to be perfectly honest. Now, there is some confusion about this because we don't have really good records of what was common in either Jewish or Roman culture at the time. There's mixed reports of what the common practice was, but it's pretty clear that Paul is speaking about something very specific here. He's speaking about hats, if you will. As you notice, I entitled this message, Hats, Hair, and Headship. Hats, if you will. What he says essentially here is, based upon the culture in which you live, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Right? with this hat or this veil or whatever the case might be. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So essentially the principle is men in this culture don't wear head coverings. Guys don't wear head coverings. Women in this culture wear head coverings. Women wear head coverings. Because what would have been typical of this culture is if you had removed the head covering, you were telling everybody that either you didn't respect your husband or you didn't respect authority in general. It was, a, it was an act of rebellion within this culture. And Paul extrapolates it out to hair. Look at verse 6 and 7. He also speaks to that. He says, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. And we go, what in the world does hair length have to do with any of this? Again, it's a cultural reality. It's something specific in this culture. What women would do, and there was a feminist movement in first century Rome, is in act of rebellion against the tyranny of men, they would shave their heads to either say, I'm in rebellion against that as an act of, of uh, what's the right word, uh, where you stand out there and you're against something? Anyway, we'll move on. Okay, or those that would shave or cut their hair short were indicating that they were sexually available, that they were a prostitute of some kind. So Paul looks at them and says, if you're going to be acting in rebellion against the cultural norm here, why don't you go all the way? And he's intending their response to be, of course, we would never do that. And that's precisely the point. That's precisely the point. And he goes on in verses 8 through 10, he talks about this principle again. He says, for a man was not made from woman, nor woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He's looking back to this creation order in Genesis 2, and he's speaking to this reality. In case you're inclined to look at this and say, well, this whole issue is really just a matter of the fall in Genesis 3, I'm fairly sure that 2 comes before 3. He's saying this isn't a result of the fall. This was established in Genesis 2. This was established when this all started. As a result, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority 
on her head. What he's saying is you ought to adopt the cultural language that says, I'm not rebelling against God's design here. I'm not seeking to look like a man. I am seeking to submit to the way God has designed creation and to my husband in that relationship. Furthermore, we end up running into this odd phrase in verse 10. You may have picked up on it when I was walking through it. It says, because of the angels. Now, I must confess that this is a bit of an obscure comment to make, and we don't really find this anywhere else in Scripture as a good example of what he means by this. So I don't want to go out too far on a limb. But I think we can say at least that what he's saying here is on some level, these angels, these messengers of God are observing what's going on in this church. They're saying this is inconsistent with the way you've built marriage and the church to function, God. I don't want to go too far beyond that, get too mystical. They're saying there's something going on there. The point here is that we shouldn't seek to blur the God-given gender distinctions in the church, either visibly or functionally. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, looks at the women in the church and he says, God created you to be a woman. He wants you to look like a woman and he wants you to act like a woman because that is who he created you to be. He looks at the men in the church and he says, men, I created you to be a man. I want you to look like a man and I want you to act like a man because that is who I created you to be. Now, don't presume all of the cultural things that go with that. That doesn't necessarily mean it means only being in the kitchen or going out and driving muscle cars. That's not the point. But he's saying there's something unique about your gender here. Now, some of us may be forced to ask the question, well, what about Galatians 3 verse 28? common question that comes up here. Well, let's look at that. What about Galatians 3.28? Galatians 3.28 is a classic passage that comes up in this dialogue. There, right, or Paul, writing to the Galatian church, says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ. And some think that this is partially the teaching that the Corinthian church was wrestling with. So some go to this text and they say, well, there should be no distinctions. Well, here in Galatians 3, what Paul is speaking against is the inappropriate division between the Jews and the Gentiles based upon the religious law. He's speaking about the availability of salvation for everyone who would come to Christ. He's not speaking about roles within the church. It's a whole different discussion. You want to talk about it more after service? Well, I'm happy to talk to you about it. That's not what he has in mind here. Because you see, Paul both recognizes the distinctions in gender relationships, and he also recognizes that that can go overboard So he emphasizes the counterbalance. Look at verse 11. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Sorry, excuse me. 1 Corinthians 11, go back to verse 11. He says this. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I'm speaking to this reality, but now I'm going to counterbalance that appropriately. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So he spoke to the dignity of gender distinctions, the differences, but he's also going to speak to the the dignity of gender dependence. He says in the context, in the Lord, there's a greater reality at play here. There is a glory in the fact that the genders need each other. Did you pick up on that? He says, right, our church would not be better if it was all men. It would not be better if it was all women. I know at times there's a tendency to think that way. But there's value in the dependence, the interdependence that we have. And I love the illustration he uses there, right? Like verse 11, or verse 12, excuse me. So, for as woman was made from man, we talked about that in Genesis 2, now man is born of woman. Guys, quick show of hands, how many of you have a mother? Good, all of you, I'm glad to hear that. 
right? How many of you would exist if it weren't for the grace of your mother in your life? My mom was a big fan of saying, you know, I brought you into this world, I could take you out of this world. The fact of the matter is we all have a mother. There's an interdependence that's even built into creation that is all supposed to be seen in marriage relationships in the church. And ultimately, it's impressive because all things are from God. It says all of this is a good gift from God. It's not a tyranny in your life. What he's saying is we shouldn't seek to limit the value of the contributions of both genders in the church either. Sometimes when you bring up texts like this, the argument gets made that, well, if we're going to err, we should err on the side of caution. And typically that means we should err on the side of conservative caution. And to that I would say to err on the side of caution is to err. You're going to be cautious against one thing, you're going to be cautious against the other. To err on the side of caution is probably to push you too far in the other direction. Paul is highlighting both the dignity and value of gender distinctions and the interdependence and necessity of both genders in the church and in the family. To err on the side of caution is to err. We should seek to go straight down the line of what Scripture is teaching us to do. To value gender distinctions and to value the contributions of both genders. Brings us back to the original point. We glorify God by maintaining the dignity of gender distinctions and gender dependence in the church. We hold both of these things. No church, no family, no home will ever do it perfectly, but we should seek to do it. It's relevant. It means as individual believers, we guard against both blurring the lines of gender distinctions and any form of sexism, which is absolutely inappropriate. We don't seek to make men and women look the same. And yes, kids and youth, you know exactly what I mean. We're not attempting to blur the lines because it's God's God-given good gift to us. But neither is any form of sexism as if one gender is better than another is ever appropriate according to the New Testament. And the church historically has been guilty of this at times, and we must admit that. As a church, we must guard against downplaying gender roles and also minimizing legitimate gender contributions. And then lastly, and we must say this, and I recognize that this can get us in hot water, when it comes to the culture, we can never obliterate the God-given good design for gender. We cannot obliterate God's plan for gender. It is not an undermining of equality. It is not a disparaging of the fact that every person is made in the image of God. But this is a good gift from God, and we must say that because it is exactly what the Bible says. Now, one final appeal from Paul. In verses 13 through 16, he makes a final appeal to the Corinthian church and we see that we glorify God by, lastly, peaceably submitting to God's design here. Verse 13 through 16, Paul begins his summary by challenging the Corinthians. He says, judge for yourselves. Look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves, and then ask them two questions. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that a man wears long hair is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given her for a covering? He asks these two questions. He says, is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Now, again, I think what he's got in mind here is in the context of the church. I don't think he's talking about it home when you're in private by yourself. But the implied answer is obviously no. Because culturally, 
that would have confused people about either your sexual availability or your gender. And he goes and he says, does it not come from nature that a man who wears long hair is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? And the implied answer is yes, that's very apparent. Now, our culture doesn't have some of the same sort of opinions about gender and the way males and females look. And yet, Paul is speaking to something here where he's saying there's some universal realities that are at play here too. There are some contextual things, but there's also some universal realities, and we must be careful to too quickly eliminate them. Ask yourself the question, why am I dressing the way I am? Why am I doing the things that I do? What is going on in my heart? Am I attempting to deviate from God's plan, or am I looking to embrace God's good gift of gender to me? We must be careful in this area. And then Paul offers these final words, this final assessment in verse 6. He says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, I don't know why anyone would be inclined to be contentious about a text like this, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Since there's this possibility for disagreement, but this is a universally agreed on thing within the churches. So we must be careful to too quickly deviate from realities that have been largely agreed on for 2,000 years in the church. Doesn't mean they're right. Majority opinion doesn't make it right, but we must be cautious in this area. The fundamental point at play here is that we glorify God by peaceably submitting to God's design for families and the church. That's what we do. Because we believe what the Bible says. Now, I recognize that if you're sitting here today and you are, particularly if you're an unbeliever, or maybe you find yourself struggling with this reality of this distinction between genders and the priorities that God has placed here in 1 Corinthians 11, and maybe it's because of a particular past experience, a way that authority or your father was engaged in pain or abuse in your life. Let me recognize that that is true. But the negative use of authority does not undermine the proper loving use of it. The only way to rewrite your understanding that was so broken by an authority figure in your life is by looking to Christ, looking to God as the true, loving, faithful father. You will never understand God's design for gender apart from recognizing and feeling the love of Christ in your own heart. It's only by knowing the God who designed us this way that you can properly submit to what God has called you to because he loves you and it's a good gift. It's not a tyranny. In that way, it's kind of like, I'm not much of a car guy and you guys know that, uh, but it's kind of like when you run into issues with your car. Let's, let's speak to this hypothetical example here for just a moment. Now, let's say you run into an issue with your car and your car starts acting up and it starts making this funny sound. And you're like, well, I've had cars before. I've had some experience with cars. I, I know what the sound is. My car is misfiring, right? There's this odd sound and I go, it's a spark plug or it's something related to that. So you take it into your car guy and you say, I think there's a problem with my car. It's not working quite correctly. I think it needs a new spark plug or something needs to happen with the, this whole issue. And he says, I don't think that's it. And you're like, well, hold on a second, you haven't even looked at the car yet. Well, I'm pretty sure that's not it, but I'll take a look. So you go away, and he looks at the car, you come back, and he says, I, I'm sure it's not that problem. And you go, but hold on, I've had a lot of experience with this, okay? I know what's going on in the car, it sounds like this. So he says, well, how about we call the manufacturer? Okay, we'll see if the manufacturer can clarify this for us. All right, so you call the manufacturer up on the phone, and you say, this is the sound, and I'm fairly sure that I've got a spark plug issue, and it's misfiring, it's probably this sort of an issue, and the manufacturer, I'm pretty sure it doesn't, pretty sure that's not it. And you go, well, hold on a second, you didn't see the car. 
You don't know what's going on. How could you possibly know that this car, that's not the problem? Do you hate cars? You're like, well, no, I don't hate cars. Well, what's the issue then? Well, I actually like cars. I designed this car. In fact, I was one of the people involved in designing your Tesla. <laughs> ah, there it is. Right? Everybody else that isn't here, go home this afternoon and Google replacing the, piss or the, the spark plugs in my Tesla. Let's see what you get on the internet. Electric cars don't have spark plugs. They don't work by combustion. They're not designed to work that way. So you can look at your car and you can say, why doesn't it operate like all my other cars do? It wasn't designed to do that. It was designed a specific way by a manufacturer and designer that understood the way it's supposed to work. Just consider for a moment the possibility that there is a good, loving God who designed us as humans and designed us as men and women and has a specific way that those roles are supposed to work within the family and within the church, and he loves you enough to say, this is the way it's supposed to work. Here's the point. Here's the principle, the key point that we're going after today. We must respect God's design for the value distinction of genders and model that in the church. This is a good gift from God. This is something he has built into creation and into marriage and into the church. And to reject that on the grounds of our feelings or our culture is to deviate from God's good design. Now, before I close in prayer, I just want to say here real briefly that if you're struggling with anything I said or you're finding issues with my interpretation, I'd love to speak with you after the service. Mike would be happy to speak with you after the service. We would love to talk about this and what's going on. I spend about twice as much time on this message as I do any given week. There's about 30 hours worth of study that didn't make it into this sermon. I'd be happy to have a discussion with you. I'd be happy to hear about your experience and what you think on this subject. Let's pray. Father, we realize this is a huge subject that can't possibly be addressed in just one sermon. It's more than we could possibly understand in this one time, and it's such an incredible reality that you've gifted to us. Help us to recognize the value of the genders that you've given us in the church. Help us to recognize the dignity of it, the unique design for it, and help us to seek to live in conformity with that. Lord, do it not only for your own glory, but for our good as well. Help us to submit to that, recognizing you have a good plan for your creation and for your people. And if we submit to that and submit to your will, we will both glorify you and live a life that's more in conformity with the way you designed creation to be anyway. Lord, help us to do that faithfully this week. In your name, amen.